So sexuality is an umbrella term for uh, who we are as men and women, uh, who we are as uh, uh, gender minorities, perhaps. Um, and it speaks to um, how we think of ourselves. It speaks to who we desire uh, emotionally and intellectually. And certainly it, it addresses people, uh, those who we have sexual intercourse with or sexual activity with, what, whatever, whatever that is and whatever the, the, the boundaries of that are. So it's a really broad term that goes way beyond uh, sex itself. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Welcome to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have Dr. Ann Katz, who is a award-winning author, certified sexuality counselor, and a clinical nurse specialist. She currently lives in Manitoba, Canada, and we're grateful for her being with us today. Welcome, Anne. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Very good. Uh, Anne, we, we, we are aware that uh, you do something that a lot of people don't like to always talk about. And just wondering how it is that you started on this journey, and uh, if you'd be willing to share a part of that with us. Sure. So um, there's a long version and then there's a short version. I think perhaps uh, the short version <laughs> uh, will have to suffice. So I'm originally from South Africa, which uh, you may be able to tell from my accent. It has a Canadian veneer on it because we've been here for almost 40 years. Um, mm. uh, I immigrated with my husband and a five-and-a-half-month-old baby uh, in the mid-'80s. And um, I trained uh, as a nurse in South Africa. And uh, when I reflect back, there's there's always sort of been issues around sexuality hanging on sort of the verges of, of my life. Mm. But um, when we came to Canada, um, we lived in rural Saskatchewan, and uh, my husband's a physician. And as the doctor's wife, I couldn't work. Uh, I was really bored. Um, <laughs> and we moved to Winnipeg, which is in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And um, this was in 1988. And the HIV-AIDS uh, epidemic was sort of just starting here at, at that time, and um, I was actually reading uh, a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and um, oh. this is going to sound a little bit strange perhaps, but I kind of heard a voice saying, this is where you need to work. So hmm. um, I actually first started off as a buddy support volunteer, um, and then a nursing job opened up in, in the, the uh, clinic uh, that served uh, virtually all uh, individuals here who had been diagnosed with HIV, and I started working there. and really learned stuff about sexuality that um, I didn't think I needed to know. <laughs> that, that was sort of the, the start. Um, I then went on to um, get a PhD and went to teach at the university. And um, after about five years, um, I just felt that I wasn't making a difference. I think in retrospect, I certainly have contact now with, with uh, nurses who were students of mine who tell me the difference that I made in their life. But at the time, it really didn't feel um, like I was making a difference. And I became a nurse to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought, well, how can I make a difference? And I I went to look for a population that needed um, um something different from what they were getting. And mm. um, oh, by this time, I'd actually done some courses in uh, human sexuality through the University of Guelph in Ontario. So I went, and as most academics do, I did a literature search, and it jumped out to me that uh, individuals with cancer had sexual problems that really weren't being discussed in the literature or in the clinical area. And I um, went to our local cancer center that that serves the population of Manitoba, which is over a million plus, Northwest Ontario, which is um, uh, just to the to the north and east of us. Um, and I said, "Listen, this is you know this is an area that I'm interested in working in. Are you interested in just giving me an office? You don't even have to pay me. This will be part of my faculty practice." 
And that was in um, 2000. And I mm. haven't looked back since. So, oh, Anne, wow. uh, you mentioned something about hearing a voice. I mean, that is similar to a spiritual calling. Um, how, how would you define that voice? Um, yeah, you know, I think, I think some people would, would call it a spiritual calling. You know, maybe it was. Um, it was certainly something that I heard loud and clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I'm so grateful because it has, uh, it has led me to a career. I actually left the university in 2004 and went to work full time, um, at the cancer center. Um, and it's been the most amazing, amazing experience. It's led me to travel all over the world talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly on a daily basis seeing patients um, and their partner. I grow as a human being each and every day, just hearing other people's stories. So, um, yeah, perhaps it was a spiritual calling. But sexuality speaks to who we are as human beings, who we desire, who we're attracted to, um, Yes, you know, certainly what we do in the bedroom, the kitchen, the living room, the deck at the cottage. Um, but that's just, a, that's just a small part of it. It's about how we identify as men or women or somewhere on, on, on that spectrum of, of gender identity. Um, mm. So, you know, for me, this is a, a really big overarching uh, concept that encompasses, you know, so much more than body parts. Mm. Yes. It's much deeper. Absolutely. And, you know, I think some would say that it's, that it's spiritual. And, you know, as I've said to you before, I'm not a particularly religious person. I was brought yeah. up in the Jewish faith, and um, certainly I, I have a, a Jewish home, um, however you define that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was, think, I was thinking about, about a, a man that I saw many years ago. Mm. Um, I had seen him and, and his wife. Uh, they were just this lovely um, couple from Europe who had met on the boat coming over to Canada um, in the 1940s or 1950s. And um, I was uh, seeing them to to help him make a treatment decision uh, because he had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Mm. And I remember them saying to me, you know, we, we, we are not sexually active with each other. That's, you know, that's in the past. They were in their 60s. So, um, <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, you know, I think which is also, yeah, exactly, you know, the ageism that, that exists. But mm-hmm. so no sex doesn't, you know, no, no sex, you know, no problem. So he had surgery to remove his prostate. Uh, the urologist um, didn't bother to do nerve-sparing surgery, and I don't really want to get into a whole discussion about that. But anyway, mm-hmm. so he was, re- you know, he was no longer um, able to be sexually active. Six months after this, he shows up in my office by himself. Mm-hmm. He sits down, and now he wants to talk to me about erectile AIDS. And for a moment, I lost my professional filter, and I said to him, uh, well, I I kind of burst out of me, "Um, are you going outside your marriage? And I immediately felt terrible, right? Because that's a a value judgment. And he looked very sheepish, and he he nodded his head, and and that indeed was the case. Mm. Um, So, you know, I am now left with a moral dilemma. Right. Mm-hmm. What yeah. do I do about this? To me, to me, marriage is um, the only word I have for it is is a sacred commitment that we make to somebody else, and um, it really bothered me for for a long time. And I actually wrote uh, up this case, and and it was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. You know, I had to do this quick sort of discussion in my head about what do I do, right? But but ultimately, mm-hmm. it is not for me to judge. No, no. Um, and, and, you know, he, he, I, I saw him once more, and he told me that this had been the pattern in, in his life uh-huh. uh, and in his marriage, that he had always had um, girlfriends on the side or women friends on the side, that this was culturally acceptable where he came from. His wife knew about it. Um, they were Catholic, and for them, the purpose of sex was to have children. And when they were done having children, that was it. Mm-hmm. That he was still a man with with desires and longings and needs, and there you go. Mm-hmm. So you know, often people think the work that I do is kind of well. You know, if this is wrong, then you do this. If that is wrong, then you do this. It's not. <laughs> it's a whole lot more than that. Um, you know, and that's and that's where I grow. For so many people, sexuality uh, is about sex. Mm-hmm. And um, there's actually a term for it. We call it the coital imperative, and and I love that that term. It was actually uh, uh, 
first mentioned by a woman a researcher from Australia named Jane Usher. Um, you know, so what is this? So often I think when we think about people at or near the end of life, you know, touch is, is, is often not considered and we put up so many barriers to, to people at that point in their life. Um, that prevents them from accessing touch because we're kind of weirded out because we, yes, we think that they're going to be having sex. Mm-hmm. You know, why, um, you know, when you, what often happens if somebody is, is spending this period of time in their home, you know, we bring in the hospital bed, right? And it's put smack dab in the middle of the living room mm-hmm. and there's no privacy, right? Mm-hmm. People are coming and going. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it it kind of you know people don't ever think to say you know let's put a couple of blankets in a gap between the mattress and the railing of the bed and let's move uh, the person to the edge and and let their partner climb into bed with them because they you know they've been doing that for x number of years anyway oh, yes and mm. right and and how you know how much how much comfort does that bring to both of them so much. So much more than we ever would ever imagine. Let's take our listeners through some of these books you've written because it's, it's imp- I love for our listeners to be exposed to your material because you really have groundbreaking work uh, in this field. So what was well, your... Thank you so much. Yes. What was your first book? I see a lot of sex in cancer, so that is your specialty. What was your first book? Correct. So my first book was called Breaking the Silence on Cancer and Sexuality, a handbook mm-hmm. for healthcare providers. Yes. So it's a textbook, and I actually have uh, published a revision of that last year. So it was a textbook um, for nurses, social workers, physicians, um, anybody involved in oncology care, mm-hmm. um, talking about how cancer affects sexuality uh, from the from the perspective of all different kinds of cancers. So, mm. you know, I often when I go and do presentations, I often challenge the audience to say to me, okay, what area of cancer care do you work in? And they'll say, oh, bone marrow transplant. And I'll say, mm. okay, so I will tell you now how sexuality is affected by bone marrow transplant. Mm. There is not a single cancer that does not affect sexuality, either mm. the cancer itself, but more often actually the treatment of cancer. So mm. that was my first book. I published it and I started getting letters from colleagues and uh, and acquaintances who attend the same sex therapy conferences that I do. And they were saying to me, this book is fantastic. I'm recommending it to all my clients. And I thought, whoa, first of all, that's great. It's a textbook, so the royalties are a little bit higher. But <laughs> this book is not written for, for consumers. This book is written for professionals. So I went back to the publisher and I said, hey, you know, there needs to be a book for consumers. So that's when I wrote Woman Cancer Sex and Man Cancer Sex, both Mm. in the same year. Mm. Every chapter in each of those books is about a sexual experience or sexual challenge, but in the form of a narrative. Mm. And I've actually just submitted a revision of Woman Cancer Sex. So... Mm. um, so that will be coming out, I think, toward the end of the year. So what have you so added in the revision? All new stories. And one of the stories uh, mm. in, in all of these books is what happens to a couple at the end of life and how to, to um, just to, to provide permission, really, to couples to actually get close, um, you know, have that touch. So both of those books not only contain the stories, and and these are composites of of people that I have seen. There are no real uh, people's experiences there. Um, but but in each of these, in each of the chapters, there are tips and advice, mostly based on evidence. Uh, so so this is not just something that I've made up in my head. Um, mm. There really is good evidence to support uh, these tips and and guidance. Mm. Okay, so after that, I think came, I think there are 14 books, so sometimes it's a little bit difficult. Oh, and both of those books have actually been translated and published in Mandarin, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> wow. It is. Uh, I, uh, and then I wrote a book called Prostate Cancer and the Man You Love, mm. which is a book for the partners uh, of, of um, men with prostate cancer that goes through the gamut from um, PSA screening through diagnosis and all the various uh, treatments as well as end-of-life care. Oh, I then also wrote a book called Sex When You're Sick, which yeah. talked about 
all different illnesses and how they affect sexuality. And certainly in the area of men's sexual health, um, the connection with um, a cardiac event is just so strong. So um, mm. I think that's uh, really interesting. And I'm actually hoping to do um, another book uh, like that. These topics, as you talk about it, you have this passion. They seem personal. Are there any stories that you can share that trigger that passion, you know, that our listeners can connect with? Oh, you know, um, I mean, first of all, you know, my first passion is, well, I've got a whole lot of passions. But I see. <laughs> besides wine and food. <laughs> my passion is for, is for writing. I love to write. Mm. Um, and I write very quickly. Um, my second passion, Passion is to educate and help people. So, um, you know, these 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 stories are written um, in order that people can identify with them, and that um, there's also guidance and advice because nobody's talking about this. Mm. Um, you, you know, we're not we're not talking about this in a meaningful way. Sure. It's often glossed over when patients are brave enough to ask the question of their oncology care provider, or they're just referred to somebody else. You know, go see a psychiatrist, go see a family and marital therapist. And when you look at um, the amount of education for nurses and physicians, for example, in their undergraduate degrees, mm. it's pretty much. Two hours here, an hour there, not comprehensive at all. Mm. So, so you know, perhaps if, if people aren't getting answers from their healthcare providers, if they read my books and shameless self-promotion, um, hopefully <laughs> they will get that, that information. And they're hungry for information. Yes. Your book's uh, Sex When You're Sick. Now, is that from the perspective of the, of the person who is sick or is it for the person who's partner, for the partner? Either. Okay. Either. Okay. So, you know, I make sure when I write books for consumers, first of all, uh, I use gender neutral language. There is always a chapter on a same sex couple or, uh, or an individual who is uh, a member of the, of a sexual minority. Um, you know, I really try and be culturally appropriate and culturally mm -hmm. aware mm -hmm. and, you know, and recognize that, that, that uh, you know, people come in all shapes and sizes and all colors and all cultures and ethnic groups and religious mm -hmm. groups for that matter. And, um, and you know, so I try to be sensitive to that. Um, can be a little bit difficult sometimes because you never know when someone's going to pick on you, right? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I just, I just yeah. you know, I've had my, my illnesses and I'm guessing that you've had yours or some sort of you know, concerns about this, which helps your writing as well from your own perspective. Uh, and I always, you know, I think I look back at what took place during that time and I'm thinking about, uh, you know, I was only worried about myself and I wasn't thinking of my partner. Is that a common, yeah. is that a common response? Um, um, yes. And, you know, and, and so it's such an interesting question. So, you know, I, I often think that when somebody is ill, their partner in many ways uh, emotionally suffers more. So when I talk to, oh, to that, couples... That's what I was wondering, um, yeah. Yeah, so when I talk to couples, particularly heterosexual couples, and I'll, I'll let's just say it's, it's a man with some kind of cancer, I'll often say to... or No, let's switch that. If it's a woman with some kind of cancer, I'll often say to them, do you have children? And they'll say, you know, yes, we have three children. And I'll say to the man, do you remember when your wife was going through labor? And you know, the man says, well, yes. And I'd say, well, so what was that like? You know, watching somebody in pain. The woman knows what she has to do, right? She has to get their darn baby out. Can't stay there much longer. <laughs> but to watch someone suffer causes such emotional distress. The, you know, the, the person with cancer has to get through their treatment. Yes. Right? Mm. Um, but, but seeing somebody in existential pain, seeing somebody in physical pain is so difficult to watch. And partners often feel absolutely helpless. I think we've gotten better in terms of seeing cancer as a couple's disease or really any mm. illness for that matter. If you have a partner, your partner is affected by it. Right. And, you know, I think now about, you know, in this COVID plague that I call it, we are not seeing partners uh, for, for clinical care because we try and minimize the number of people in our, in our cancer centers. Yes. People are in hospital. They're not allowed, you know, visitors. That's, they're not visitors. They're family members. They're support mm -hmm. people. They're mm -hmm. caregivers. 
you know, how awful to have to go through uh, treatment uh, without somebody there with a loving hand. Mm. It I must be can't charming. imagine that. You know, that just, you know, having been yeah. through my, my uh, medical issues and thinking about, you know, like going in for surgery and you look and you watch that, watch your loved one go and they give you a kiss and tell you they love you and then all of a sudden they're gone and not, not to have that. That yep. just sounds, like you say, cruel, just really cruel. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, we have to, we have to do what we have to do with this. And, yes. And, and yeah. we, you know, we have to be careful, but we also have to recognize the suffering. Mm. Yeah, with that, we'll take a short break and then we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. We are talking to Anne, who is a sexuality expert. Anne, could you help us define sexuality? So sexuality is an umbrella term for uh, who we are as men and women, uh, who we are as uh, uh, gender minorities, perhaps. Um, and it speaks to um, how we think of ourselves. It speaks to who we desire uh, emotionally and intellectually. And certainly it, it addresses people, uh, those who we have sexual intercourse with or sexual activity with what whatever whatever that is and whatever the, the, the boundaries of that are. So it's a really broad term that goes way beyond uh, sex itself. Now how does that fit into when you are have the impact of being told you have cancer? You are seriously ill. Uh, I mean does that do, at what point do people start talking about Sexuality again, when all of a sudden all they're doing is thinking about end of life, maybe. Yeah, so, so you know, first of all, I want to mention that not, not everybody who's diagnosed with cancer is at or near the end of life. Uh, the, you know, the vast majority of, of individuals with the most common cancers go on to, to, to live um, many for the, for the rest of their, their natural life because they're treated and, and the treatment works. Um, so, you know, I, I, I see a couple of things. I think for um, for cancers where there is an obvious link to sexuality, prostate cancer, breast cancer, gynecologic cancer, um, not not always recognized colorectal cancer, which is 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 increasingly common, particularly in younger people today. You know, when often, and I see this a lot with with men with prostate cancer, um, they know because we tell them that their sexual functioning is going to be impacted by the treatment. And often uh, they will say to me, you know, for the last couple of months when I was waiting to have my surgery, it was like we were honeymooners again because wow. they were making memories, right, and banking mm -hmm. memories. And, and I just think that's absolutely lovely. And certainly through the rigors of treatment, um, you know, many people find that they're, they're really not that interested mm -hmm. uh, in sex itself, but certainly the importance of touch remains. But we also have to remember, and this is, you know, for a lot of people really uncomfortable, that in some relationships, people don't have a choice to be sexual. They have oh. to for financial security. Um, so, you know, it's not uncommon for me to see particularly women who are being sexual because they are afraid that their partner is going to leave them or punish them in some way. Um, and, you know, that makes, it certainly makes me uncomfortable, but it's certainly something that, that I have to address, um, every now and then. Mm. Um, you know, I think we often think that at or near the end of life or for somebody with a, with terminal cancer stage four, first of all, those individuals often do, uh, um, uh, people diagnosed with advanced cancer, many of them actually live for a number of years. Um, but we kind of get a little bit, um, uncomfortable, I think, with the idea of somebody being sexual at or in uh, or near the end of life. And that really doesn't, you know, that that's a very narrow definition of what being sexual is. Mm -hmm. um, the need for touch never goes or never, ever goes away. Um, and so for, for, for some people, you know, cuddling in bed, kissing like, you know, we, we all used to when we were 14, <laughs> sort of that making out or, or kissing and canoodling, as, as I call it, um, you know, that, that's a good thing. It's mm. about connection. It's about oxytocin, the hormone of attachment, which comes from touch. Mm. 
And why do you think that sexual issues are not talked about in terminal illness? I think for the really for the same reason that they're not talked about at any point in the illness because mm. healthcare providers don't want to seem weird or voyeuristic, you know, sticking their themselves into a very um, a private part of somebody's life. Mm. Um, I think patients are often afraid to raise the topic um, because maybe they don't they think they don't have the professional words um, or because. They think that the healthcare provider, if this was important, the healthcare provider would talk about it. So mm. the, the result is a deafening silence. The healthcare provider waits for the questions. The patient waits for the healthcare provider to provide information. Mm. And the result is the silence. And that's why I called my first book, Breaking the Silence. That's an, that's an oh. awesome title because I think of all the times that uh, I've heard and been around folks mm-hmm who are very ill and uh, then I hear that their loved one jumps into bed with them and like you say, canoodles and, you know, sometimes a person who the patient is, is not responsive. That doesn't matter. Uh, I get such a feeling of grace with that, that something like that has happened. Uh, I encourage people, and they they look at me sometimes like I'm I'm really not really understanding what's going on. You know, their loved one is dying, so why do you think you want me? Why do you think that you sh- I should go into bed with them? Am I going to hurt them? Yeah. Am I going to you know? And it's it's such. I know you use the word taboo. It is a taboo sometimes that we we think that this is just not something that should be done. And how do we then teach them to say that it's okay to have? sexuality in the midst of an illness? Yeah, that's a really good question, you know, and I think it puts the onus on, on, the, on the patient or their partner to, to have to, to ask or speak about something which really, you know, I, I think should come as a suggestion from the healthcare provider. Um, and I think hospice uh, nurses and, and, and palliative care physicians are so much better at this, but not everybody has access. Uh, mm. to those professionals. And, you know, often if it's just, if it's left to to other uh, healthcare providers who just, you know, don't think about it or bring their own baggage to the situation. You know, we, we bring ourselves to everything that we do. Um, you know, and I remember as a, as a very young uh, baby nurse um, back in South Africa, we had this big, what we call Florence Nightingale wards, 12 patients down each side. So you mm. could literally stand at the entrance to, to, the, to the ward and you could see everything that was going on. And we had a young woman who had uh, a, um, a, a cardiac infection, so an infection in the uh, around her heart. Uh, she was in hospital for six weeks on uh, intravenous antibiotics. Now we treat these at home. Mm. Um, and her, we had strict visiting hours, two to three in the afternoon, uh, seven to eight at night. And um, her boyfriend used to come visit her um, at night, mm. uh, in the night uh, visiting hours. I mean, it was two hours a day. And they would draw the curtains round her bed, <laughs> and I remember, I remember me walking down the ward and saying outside the curtains, "Feet on the floor." You know, it's something from, you know, forty years ago, and I still remember it. And I'm so ashamed, right? You know, yeah. this young couple, feet on the floor. Um, oh, you, know, you should be were, ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> Um, so I've never said that again. That is a that is a great story. I've got a I've got a yeah. I've got a question here for you, and I and you know, uh, you said this is you said the suggestions and whatever should come from a healthcare provider. Uh, I don't think that's always true. In fact, I, I would argue with you that someone such as myself or Saul go in there and start talking about the gift the gift from God about sexuality. <clears throat> and then, my, I mean, I would use it that way and, yeah. and encourage oh, I, them to, uh, you know, you know, they don't have to go in there and, you know, hit it off three times. Yeah, but I, I mean, you know, I'm just saying that that's something that, that if given the right pr- approach would be there, you know? I agree, I agree with you 100%. But how many people 
right, are provided with the same kind of presence that you bring. Mm. Um, uh, you okay. know, not every right, not every yeah. hospital has that, right? True. Absolutely, um, or perhaps that's right. It's, yeah, and you know, and perhaps it, you know, it might be a member of the clergy who you know doesn't agree and thinks that there's something wrong. Um, so it's uh, your job good point. to good go point. out and educate your your peers. Just mm-hmm. as I spend so much, well, I used to because, but now you know, with COVID, I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was I was traveling, you know, three sometimes four times a month talking to audiences of healthcare providers. And my goal is always, it doesn't matter if there are 20 people in the room, 200 or 2,000. Mm. If just one person changes their practice, mm. if just one person asks the question, so how has your relationship changed since you've been, since your heart attack, since mm. you've been right. diagnosed with cancer, right. since you've had a baby? Mm. Right? Oh, yes. We've got to start talking about it. And you don't mm-hmm. have to say SEX. You can actually say, how has your relationship changed? Mm. Um, Very good point. And, and, and just open the door and then shut your mouth. Mm. And, you know, the value of silence. And, you, you know, you know that. Absolutely. The value of silence. Right? Because yeah. human beings don't like silence. So it becomes a bit of a game. Who's going to keep quiet longer? Who's Hmm. going to break the silence? And my aim is to get the patient to break the silence. It sounds kind of crash, and it's not meant that way. Oh, no, no, no. That is good stuff. No, that is very good because that's, in my CPE experience, that's exactly what I was encouraged. And that's a good reminder of me to maintain the silence because when you ask a question and then you answer it for them, you're not helping them. Correct. So, uh, you, in in one of your writings, you mentioned that the attitudes of healthcare professionals can act as barriers in discussing sexuality and terminal illness. Could you describe some of those attitudes? Well, I'm going to tell you a story because I think that's how we learn. Yes. So many years ago, when I first started my practice at the cancer center, I see this couple. They're in their sixties, um, kind of grown up hippies. And I say to them, so, you know, tell me what brings you here. And the woman tells me that she actually had a malignant melanoma, so a a bad skin cancer on her right shoulder. And it had been operated on and uh, she was having a lot of pain uh, when she was in bed. So she asked the health, the oncologist, she said, you know, I guess he or she said, do you have any questions? And she said, yes. And she described that how, you know, she has pain. And then she described it as such. He took three steps back, hit the doorknob, opened the doorknob and went flying out of the room. One of the nurses, one of the nurses saw this position and, uh, you know, walking very fast down the back hallway with his white coat flapping. And she actually thought that somebody had perhaps collapsed or had a cardiac arrest in the room. Mm. So she went running into the room and she said, you know, what, what, what happened? And yes, it's this lovely couple. And the woman said, well, I asked Dr. X about, you know, I told him about my shoulder being sore when I'm in bed and how it's affected our, our sexual relationship. And he ran out of the room. Luckily, the nurse knew about me and said, hang on. You just go and talk to Dr. Katz. And, mm. and this couple then arrived in my, in my room, in my office a, a, a week later. So, you know, it's, it's our own stuff. It's our own, barri- our own baggage. So mm. many of us, you know, never had proper discussions with our parents where, where I believe sex ed needs to happen, not in schools, mm-hmm. right? Because sexu- sexuality is wrapped in our values and our principles. And, and that comes from the home. So, you know, I have, uh, I, I worry for this younger generation who are learning about sex and sexuality through videos, through pornography, um, not from the people who really ought to be telling them, and that's their parents. And listen, I'm still waiting for someone to tell me about the menstrual cycle. So, you know, this comes from experience. <laughs> You might wait forever. Oh. <laughs> Here, you got a minute? <laughs> so, Anne, what are the... Isn't that sad? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is sad. Yeah. So what are the factors affecting sexual functioning at the end of life? Oh, so, you know, certainly I think pain, sedation, you know, and there's that delicate balance, right? We don't mm-hmm. want people to be in pain at the end of life. But often the medication that we give them is sedating. Mm. 
So, um, you know, a, an informed um, and open healthcare provider will talk to the couple about, you know, um, there's perhaps that golden 10 or 15 minutes after you take the medication where you're not heavily sedated. So perhaps that's the time to kiss and cuddle. Um, it's, it's important to talk about touch. Um, you know, touch without, as I mentioned before, touch without gloves, loving touch. Mm. Um, um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of this is just that, that healthcare providers don't get enough education about this. And this is not stuff that you can necessarily look up on on Doctor Google, right? Mm-hmm, um, true. You know, so so um, you know, often when I see pr- particularly people who are on chemotherapy and they're on these regimens of chemotherapy that all have acronyms that I don't really understand, you know, and I go and look in a book to see what are the sexual side effects of that, and there's nothing there. A mm. because they haven't asked because we assume that people who are having chemotherapy are too sick to be sexual. Um, and but then I start to look and I see oh respiratory symptoms, skin sensitivity, and then you know you have to kind of put the pieces together. Um, you know perhaps if somebody is 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 short of breath, um, giving them some oxygen um, while they while they are lying with their partner can be really really helpful. Uh, or perhaps before just kind of bump up their their, their oxygen levels. Um, helping someone to get in a comfortable position so that they can they can lie comfortably in in their partner's arms, um, you know, they're they're little things, they're commonsensical things, mm. um, but but they're not in the textbook, so people don't think about it. But aren't there certain things that we do with each other that produces certain hormones, pheromones, whatever those moans are, that can help <laughs> control pain? And keep people, I mean, and that comes from, I mean, I've heard, you know, I heard laughter is the best medicine and I've heard that always, I mean, for years about that. And it's so true that any time you can find something that, you know, you can relieve a lot of pain by just, you know, watching comedy, watching something you enjoy that is funny. And I'm sure that can be with something with, you know, the touch, the human touch that we could, there's something in there that makes things work better. Yeah, so, so oxytocin is the, is the hormone of attachment. And, and uh, certainly, you know, touch from, from a loving partner and loving touch from a partner. And I don't, I'm not talking about sexual parts, right? I'm talking mm-hmm. about stroking somebody's, st- stroking somebody's face, stroking somebody's arms or feet produces oxytocin. Yeah. And oxytocin helps as well. So, you know, yes, yeah, certainly, um, you know, I think in, in some ways we really do neglect um, the, the, the importance of touch in, in all, all different dimensions um, of care. Mm. But on uh, some of this, um, like if a patient has a terminal diagnosis, of course, uh, sometimes the symptoms, you know, come up so much that affect uh, any form of uh, expression of sexuality. So how can, you know, those, what kind of strategies should healthcare you know, help to manage some of those symptoms to so that the patient uh, can have at least some time to express their sexuality? Well, you know, I think certainly, and I, I think I just mentioned it, pain control, <clears throat> really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, gentle touch, um, oxygen when needed, positioning, positioning uh, the patient. Um, you know, as long as somebody is comfortable, there is absolutely no reason why they can't be um, uh, why they can't be touched or held, kissed and cuddled, um, and and you know I think it's 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 really a shame that you know I think the other I just want to say something. So many people die in hospital now mm-hmm. because there isn't enough hospice care uh, or, or hospice care providers to come into the home. You know, most people will say, I want to die at home, mm-hmm. but it's not possible because the, because the care, the level of care or, or, or the resources are not provided. Um, you know, I, I have to think that it's awful to die in hospital. And I spent a lot of my, of my time in hospitals as a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly, and we've seen this now with, with COVID, right, where people are dying in the ICU. There's always a nurse there. Yep. Mm. To hold a hand, mm. um, you know, and I think so much, so much of the of the of the um, 
information now, you know, really sort of um, is is about doctors and you know the things that they're doing. And and any smart doctor will tell you that they couldn't do what they do without nurses. And this is the year of the nurse and midwife. What a what an irony, right? For this to be uh, to be that year um, where you know nurses are, are caring for people under extraordinary circumstances. So how can the hospice team or the palliative care team, especially in this era of COVID, help, you know, hospice patients and their families, you know, continue to live out their sexuality? I think I think hospice care providers do that. Perhaps not everybody, mm-hmm. but I think, um, you know, the knowledge that, that hospice care providers have about end-of-life care is something that I wish, you know, all healthcare providers knew about. Um, just, you know, just being there, the value of silence, making a gentle suggestion, which may seem, you know, really common sense, but, um, because most people don't talk about it, um, you know, the, the patient and, and their partner may just not have, have thought about it. And I, you know, and I think people need to be encouraged because yes, there certainly is that fear often on the part of the partner. They don't want to hurt their loved one. So they need to be given permission, um, which, strange in a way, but certainly understandable. Well, the experience I've had with our hospice that both Saul and I work for is that it's, it's, it's not a subject that's brought up and addressed in any fashion until all of a sudden one of the, uh, usually it's the partner who'll say, you know, what do you think? Is it all right if I go and lay down with my loved one? And that's mm-hmm. the only time that I, I as far as, addressing the, the, the whole elephant in the room because it's there, but it's not as prevalent of an elephant as the bigger one, which is, of course, the illness. Uh, yeah. But, so, but know, it could here's be. The, here's it, the challenge. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, here's the challenge for you. You know this, right? I, I you, certainly you, do. You're a, yes, I do know it. Right? Yes. You're aware of this. So my challenge to you is you go and have a conversation with every single care provider in that hospice and beyond. You've right? just, you've and just, talk about it. you just made the hair on my arms lift up. I mean, you've challenged me and I, I, I find that to be something that I need to do. Okay. So I want to hear from you in three <laughs> months' time. <laughs> I've got to write this <laughs> down, Ian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have a deadline. Um, end of summer. <laughs> what, you know, <laughs> because they will listen to you because mm. you they know you they have a relationship with you you have the credentials you mm. come from that same belief system mm. i got gotcha. you right mm. and you can frame it you can frame it in in whatever way you want but you you can't only talk the talk you got to walk the walk and i just think about all the opportunities i've missed talking about a wife and her husband being lying there or a husband and not willing to lay there with his wife you know, the other thing that I think about is, you know, is so often when we, when we, you know, go through the experience of a, of a loved one dying, you know, initially those are, those are the memories that you have, right? You know, the change in physicality, perhaps the change in mentality. And over time, I think those, those images in our mind's eye are replaced by ones of, of when that person was well, right? Yes. When they were fully themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is, you're right. And I think this is a way of, of helping someone think about, you know, make those memories of being close again, of being, you know, supportive in such, in such a, it's not even, I want to say radical, but it's not radical because it's just a basic human need, right? Mm-hmm. But, 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 but using that to create memories of wholeness and wellness and most of all love. What, what you're teaching all of us and our audience is, is something we've never spoken about. And you're really exactly. opening our eyes in that we are best positioned to help families address this issue. And lately we've been talking a lot about symbols and rituals at the end of life, but intimacy is also one of those mm-hmm. rituals that sometimes we've neglected to honor because we thought it was a taboo. So the challenge you've yeah, given... So I w- yeah. I just want to challenge you, and, and, and I'm glad I have this opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm not intentionally being mean. But, we, <laughs> but everybody uses intimacy, right, mm-hmm. as a euphemism for sexuality. And mm-hmm. intimacy is about emotional connection. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
and 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 at at end of life that emotional connection is so important because that's what we what we remember and that's what we miss right is mm-hmm. that connection that 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 vulnerability that that you have with with someone that you love so deeply and and their vu- vulnerability you know in 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 front of you so um uh, i just wanted to to I always have to say this whenever I give a talk or, or do a podcast is, is let's just use that word correctly. Um, you know, so often, you know, somebody will say to me, I'm having problems with intimacy and I'll say to them, so what's your connection like with your partner? Oh, it's amazing. Ever since I've been sick, you know, he's done this or she's done that. You don't have a problem with intimacy. You have a sexual problem. Different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Powerful stuff. Final thoughts on how to break that silence because you've told us it's not a taboo ah so first of all to to realize and talk about the importance of loving touch with everybody mm. even people who you don't think need it um and and also i think you know perhaps ironically is the value of silence and the value of presence um and encouraging uh Couples um, or, or children to 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 touch uh, the other person um, lovingly, and I don't mean sexually, uh, mm-hmm. lovingly, because because really that's that's what makes us human. Mm. Thank you, Anne. We have to bring you back um, three you. months from now. Oh, I I I would absolutely I would I would love that, and uh, I'm interested to hear um, how your practice. Um, uh, or your being uh, changes as a result of this talk, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the one of the side effects of of this this COVID business is we're all to a certain extent isolated, and the mm. opportunity for these kinds of of conversations um, have have gone away. Mm. The and time the time has just flown past, and mm. uh, I am that indicates again, of course, what. Uh, what this topic needs and has and has not been addressed. So thank you so much yeah. for... Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. That was Dr. Ann Kanz, who is a certified sexuality counselor and a clinical nurse specialist in Manitoba, Canada. Thank you for listening.